So Chris, I hear that NFTs are mostly pump and dumps. <laughs> I was pumping this morning gas. <laughs> I'm not even kidding, Dad. I was out there pumping gas this morning. It's a, it's a dark Pacific Northwest morning before the sun has risen and it's snowing. It normally rises around, what, 10, 10 a.m., 11 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> this time of year, I don't know. Actually, does it actually ever fully ever rise? I don't think so. This is the period of time where we don't see the sun for about three months. But, okay, so no, I'm out there getting gas and uh, I'm not even kidding. As soon as I started fueling, it was a surprisingly good speaker system, I have to say. The gas pump starts playing an nft sales pitch for cyberpunk nfts crypto punk nfts whatever they are and the gal on there and it's this really low resolution video probably filmed a year ago the gal on there is talking about how nfts are quickly becoming the new investment and many are worth millions this has been your financial minute or something like that it's just where do they hand you off to where do they want you to go coinbase ftx where where there was the... no sales pitch. It was kind of under the guise of this gas pump's giving you financial news while you pump your gas. Wow. So that gas pump is likely breaking securities laws. It's a promoter of unregistered <laughs> securities. Incredible. I hadn't thought about that. I think you're right. That's uh wow. This is the craziest timeline. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, December 2nd, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me, Chris. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Last week was a slow news week. This week, I think, is the opposite. But before we get into the news, let's just get Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX out of our system. Good idea. Chris, you got the scoop on this one. What was (laughs) it that really wrecked Alameda Research, Sam Bankman-Fried's prop shop hedge fund? You wouldn't have seen it coming. Turns out it was Moxie. It was mobile coin. What really kind of perhaps begun FTX's own internal contagion was a bad bet. They lost a billion dollars betting on mobile coin. I guess they bought towards the top and mobile coins only gone one direction in price. For context, Moxie refers to Moxie Marlin Spike, which can't be his real name. I mean, it's just it's so much alliteration, right? He created or founded the Signal Foundation, which produces the private messenger called Signal. Signal is a really great tool for private messaging. It has perfect forward privacy, which from a cryptographic standpoint is really clever. But there are some things about Signal that kind of suck. One of them is that you need a phone number to sign up. So Signal is private, but not anonymous. Another is that they created an altcoin, a worthless altcoin called MobileCoin that's based on Intel SGX secure element. Is that right? the right term? Secure element technology? Yeah. Yep. Which is known to be compromised and flawed. And (laughs) (laughs) there is no reason for mobile coin to exist. It's simply a cash grab. And it really makes me question Moxie's integrity and Signal as a whole. When Moxie announced it, he did it with kind of this, all other solutions that have come before this are clearly bad and only mobile coin will solve it. And I remember thinking, lightning, Moxie, lightning, just integrate lightning. Unfortunately, we see Telegram going down the same route, perhaps for a future episode. But what's interesting in here is the process that started was, okay, FTX made a bad bet. They were out a billion bucks. Alameda stepped in to bail them out. And that's kind of when we started seeing things 
slip into the shady territory. And I have deep dived into uh, SBF, unfortunately. I've listened to every phone call recorded that's been published. I've listened to the Twitter space he participated in last night as we record. Watched his CNBC interview. I've watched his Good Morning America interview. I watched the YouTube video of the citizen journalist where he had a two-part phone call with. And Sam seems to think that these tokens are viable if they have any kind of utility at all. He thinks in his mind, the FTX token is actually worth money because it has use on the FTX platform. And I could see that same logic being applied to MobileCoin because MobileCoin had utility in theory with Signal. And I could see them going in big because it would line up right with SBF's thinking just based on what I've observed since watching all these interviews and listening to them. So my first question is, why do you do this to yourself? Why do you expose yourself to so much SBF? That's a good question. It actually, I know this sounds like a weird thing to say, but it actually has been kind of emotionally rough. I'm kind of sickened by all of it and feeling a little, little pessimistic about our human species. So you're like leaning into that feeling. This is the scammer of our generation. I'm going to really get in his head. What I'm trying to do is build defenses from future scammers, develop kind of a set of patterns I can recognize in the future so I can have red flags trigger. And there is also the I want to be able to speak to this as intelligently as I can on the pod. I want to have an understanding of what his position is, even if I don't necessarily buy it. I want to have an understanding of maybe what his thinking was, even if I don't necessarily agree with it. And so I've kind of done that deep dive just because I feel like in the next bull run, I'm hopefully developing another set of skills. Every bear market, I feel like this is true. You develop a set of skills that protect you in the next bull run. That makes sense. And that's very similar to my own journey, because I think you could say that our conversations on this podcast are the result of around five or six years of really, for me at least, trying to figure out if I was wrong about Bitcoin. Because when I first aped into Bitcoin, sure, I did some research, but I didn't go so deep. And there was a moment in that 2019 bear market when Bitcoin was down at like 3K or something, and Ethereum was still going along where I thought, could it have been Ethereum? Mm. Was that the one? Maybe it's the technology platform that will win. And actually, I used some Ethereum uh, smart contracting type tools, and I thought the user experience was really good. And I tried to understand how these things were possible. And that's when I realized, oh, this only works because there's a huge amount of infrastructure that someone else is hosting. And I don't know why they're hosting it. And I don't think it's sustainable. Right. It might be working today, but will it be working in 10 years? Gosh, I sound like an altcoiner there. I mean, I was just trying to figure it out, just trying to understand. I wonder if there isn't a bit of a journey there where you start, because if you come at it all from a technology standpoint, I think you intellectually have to kind of entertain all of the kind of value pitches that these different chains have, because they're each promising to solve a, a technological problem. And I think what you have to come to realize is that what we face right now isn't necessarily a technological problem. It's more of a hard money problem and a society problem. And so it's a fiat problem that we suffer from. And a lot of these are just fiats inspired, right? And so I think Bitcoin, when you kind of go through that process, you kind of realize why everybody sort of funnels into Bitcoin. If, if I were to use a sales term, the, the altcoins are kind of like the salesman for Bitcoin for some people, right? They get you into the crypto ecosystem and then through their various failures and inefficiencies and deficiencies, they funnel you to the one true 
Bitcoin. It's complicated, right? Because fix the money, fix the world is a nice meme. <laughs> but yeah. we're dealing with a very complicated world yeah. that is going through thousands or millions of transformations simultaneously, some minor, some huge, some existential, yeah. most important. And Bitcoin is one of these transformations and it has the potential to help a lot of people. Is it necessarily going to result in a better world? I don't know. It really depends on a lot of features. You know, if if Bitcoin empowers a bunch of crazy people, then, you yeah. know, we get more crazy people with power. If it empowers... Well, you just came back from El Salvador, you tell me. Well, I mean, meeting the Bitcoiners at the conference, they just seemed completely harmless and nice because they're developers. Although, did you see the news this morning? I think it was actually today, as we record, that El Salvador reported they just had their least violent year in the country's history since they've been tracking it. That's very positive news. At the same time, I think that El Faro might have a pretty good counter to that statement, which is El Salvador can sort of control their murder rate by moving names between the missing persons list and the murdered people's list. Oh, sure. Of course. The issue is, does that list include missing persons? Because that's that's kind of a, a place where they hide potentially violent crime in their statistics. You know, some of my shows I've been doing for a decade plus, and um, it's incredible the journey the hosts take during a decade. I just got like this this picture of you and I years down the road, and like one of us just lives in El Salvador now, <laughs> and like we look back at this episode and how quaint we thought it was. We'll see. You're right. That's a great observation. I hadn't even thought about. It. Of course, you could just you could just screw with the number <laughs> by moving people between those lists. But going back to SBF, I, I am kind of dialing it back now. I, I've kind of made up my mind and I just wanted to just build that skill set. I didn't lose anything. I did have an FTX US account, um, but I didn't have any funds in it. And so I think it's just a, I think it's good. So that way it's so easily to be manipulated by the press coverage that SBF got. And I think you have to build up defenses to be able to think critically when you're being kind of inundated with that level of just fawning coverage. And I think that's another reason I do this. So that way I can kind of stay grounded. You already do this really well. You, you're good at kind of, you know, sussing out the bs the hype and and I, this is just how i'm building that skill set as well because i had initial suspicions about ftx when i got really heavy into bitcoin over a year ago again i got one of the first things that, that was a red flag was where did this ftx come from where did who's spf none of this feels right to me and i just sort of buried that and i even eventually created an account because i wanted to see what the platform was like i didn't lose any funds but i i just want to build that skill set up and watching him now i think it's clear the next stage of this is he's going to continue to incriminate himself for a little while as he does a quote-unquote apology tour, and then maybe we'll see some actual legal action. Maybe we'll see a case against him. Maybe we won't, but I don't think his reputation will ever recover. Two interesting points. One, the fact that Moxie's altcoin scam, MobileCoin, seems to have played a role in wrecking Alameda yeah. Research and FTX. There's some beautiful poetry there. That is particularly great. The other is that the way you describe SBF's view that if a coin has a use case, it has utility, therefore value, that's really pretty basic 2017-2018 bull market ICO thinking. So in many ways, SBF's strategy and thinking is that of a new coiner. He's not really that sophisticated from a Bitcoin slash crypto perspective. He's just your average new coiner who came in with a lot of social capital that he used to buy influence. I think you nailed it. I think that that insight right there is the core of what happened. And this brings us to our episode. That was a big warm up. But today we are going to discuss another crypto billionaire you've never heard of dying mysteriously. 
Prime Trust, the custodian of Swan Bitcoin's funds, firing their CEO and founder. We have a very large economic section, including a new piece by Arthur Hayes called White Man that contextualizes Sam Bankman-Fried's scamming inside of American racial politics. Stay with me on this. It's actually a really interesting read. We also have Lynn Alden's November newsletter that really details her view of the United States long-term debt spiral and what this means for inflation and asset prices in the future. And there seems to be growing FOMO, fear of missing out, regarding central bank digital currencies. We have a great article detailing the Bank of International Settlements Embridge project, which is a way to bridge multiple central bank digital currencies for an international clearing platform. Finally, in our energy section, Switzerland might be considering banning EVs due to grid supply constraints. That's a that's a twist. In tokenomics, the Anchor DeFi project was exploited for 5 million. Another 15 million was stolen from a staking platform after an Anchor exploit. And this sort of leads into the press for DeFi. DeFi's lost all its value, the total joke. So why are so many industry players still talking about it? We also have some technology news. Coinbase has removed NFTs from their iOS app. And it's not because NFTs are a joke. It has to do with Apple's terms of service. In Bitcoin education, we have Optech 228, where we're going to focus on lightning channel jamming attacks. This is a really interesting and slightly scary subject. And then we have, I think, just a tiny bit of feedback. And that's our episode. I'm looking forward to this episode. There's a lot of signal in there. But first, we start with the mysterious death of another crypto billionaire. And this individual's name is Tian Tian. Okay. Never heard of Tian Tian, but I'm also the world's worst person when it comes to names. So I may have and just forgotten them. So this individual's name is Tian Tian Kulander, who apparently was involved with something called the Amber Group. And the Amber Group seemed to be a trading outfit that did some activity on FTX. They also claim to have a trading platform called Whalefin. Why are we reporting on this? Well, Tian Tian died in his sleep, whereas Nikolai Mushegian drowned at that beach in yeah. Puerto Rico. Yeah. And Nikolai's untimely demise really is feels like a callback to the Trilemma guys drowning at the South American beach where everyone drowns. Do you remember what his name was? No, but the reason why it's all confusing and the reason why we're having trouble with names is because then there was a third crypto billionaire who died. His helicopter crashed. His name was Valenchev Tehran, and he was a Russian billionaire who was supposedly the third top cryptocurrency trader in the country of Russia, and his helicopter crashed uh, like four or five days ago. So it's been three of these crypto billionaires in a row, and they all have very hard names, not to be too uh, of a, of American there, but it's really kind of bizarre. It was Merceau Popescu. So Merceau Ooh, Popescu. Right. He, yeah, he was this insane early Bitcoiner who ran a early scam Bitcoin oh. trading or exchange type thing. Like you had to pay him to even be able to trade. And oh God, so a good guy, real good guy. His blog doesn't even have an SSL cert. So oh, oh, we need a we need a name for these individuals. I mean, not to speak badly of the dead, but we need a name for these people who. Uh, just come in with the obvious grift, you know, real cool guys who are just grifters. 
Well, I think his last post on Trilemma was 2014. So this guy was really, really early. Ah, yeah. Grift in the old school class. That's even worse. He's getting rich off the backs of us who who made these cryptocurrencies actually have a damn network effect. The Trilemma blog is very weird and very politically incorrect, so I'm not recommending it. But it was this sort of early incubator of some Bitcoin ideas that were then popularized. Ooh, that sounds fascinating, actually. You're just by talking about politically incorrect ideas and early Bitcoin ideals, you're just making me want to read this blog right now. (laughs) It's blowing up in my face. Okay, because Marcel Popescu was a terrible guy. I mean, he actually offered money for someone to assassinate Peter Todd. Or was it oh. Peter Todd or um, the this other? This is ringing maintain- a bell. This is actually ringing a bell now. Actually, it might have been Vanderlaan or something. But basically, Popescu is a radical misogynist and jerk, and would be assassin buyer. So anyway, that really went off the rails. We're going to have to edit this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what happens sometimes. These are characters. These crazy crypto billionaires are absolutely wild characters. It's kind of to be expected, because if you were really early to Bitcoin, you're crazy. Bitcoin's always been a very fringe community, and it's only recently becoming more mainstream. So the people who gravitate to these communities early, they often have some very specific interest or are kind of on the outside of social consensus. So it's not surprising that our early figures are pretty bonkers. And the ones we don't talk about are the quiet ones who just collected and stacked billions and then launched institutions like Prime Trust. I did not realize that this was the story of Prime Trust. Oh, I actually was just making a joke. I don't actually know if that's the story of Prime Trust. (laughs) (laughs) But I just mean like, you know, there is those quiet Bitcoiners who just stacked and built a business and didn't really go wild, but they also didn't advertise the fact that, you know, they were using Bitcoin to do that. And it feels like Prime Trust might be, that could be Prime Trust. I should probably know, since it seems like they have a service I might be interested in. I mean, you do meet these OG Bitcoiners who, oh, so yeah, yeah, I, I found out about Bitcoin in 20, 2011, you know, participated well, yeah. in the Ethereum. Dude, found out. Resale. I was doing podcasts about Bitcoin in 2011, please. There still are those the early OGs, but they're a very small number. And, they're you know, they generally have some, like, very specific relation to Bitcoin. Like, they're a gold bug who liked computers, and so Bitcoin made sense to them. Or maybe they had an interest in cryptography, and so that kind of appealed to them. So they, they tend to be quite out there. All right. Well, which one would you describe me? Well, I think you're an early adopter. That's your mm, thing. Okay. 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 I did look a little bit into Prime Trust. They're founded in Vegas. They've had two rounds of VC funding and to a total of 176 million, which kind of incredible to say this, but 176 million in terms of two VC rounds is actually not a lot, which is a good sign. Prime Trust is described as a crypto services business. And I think mainly they do some sort of Bitcoin and maybe other crypto custody. Yeah. And so they can act as a backend custodian for businesses like FTX, Alameda Research, and also Swan Bitcoin, which is a buy-only Bitcoin exchange that encourages self-custody. But Swan needs a place to stage Bitcoin before it sends to customer wallets. And so I think that Prime Trust, they'll hold the Bitcoin for Swan, and maybe they'll also have an over-the-counter OTC desk that will do private Bitcoin deals to get good prices for large institutional clients. They're doing bulk buys in general. 
I believe, is that's a big part of their business. You know, when you hear about uh, people like Sailor who are buying off exchange, they're doing OTC buys. It's these kinds of institutions. There's there's a handful of them. It's actually not very many. And Prime Trust is one of the big ones. They are doing these off exchange buys. So they'll do bulk buy of Bitcoin and then they'll sell it to their individual clients. So like when Swan Bitcoin is stacking on behalf of their clients, because what Swan does is Swan is an auto stacking service and they buy from Prime. Prime is their supplier of Bitcoin, if you will. And why are we talking about Prime? Because they fired Tom Pegler, their CEO. And this is one of the several CEOs who have been let go recently. There was, well, there was Trabuco, the CEO, the co-CEO of Alameda Research, who randomly quit just before the thing exploded. Then, of course, the, I think, FTX US, they hired some regulator to be their chief legal counsel, and he left after a month. So when you see the CEO get fired or leave, that's often like a rat leaving the ship. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Prime Trust. Yeah. Because they're not a public company. There's no real data about their activities. So there could be all sorts of shenanigans happening. At the same time, it's just speculation. Yeah. Because on paper, what they do is buy and custody Bitcoin, which if you're not hacked, should be a safe activity. That said, there is some controversy because it appears that SBF was using Prime Trust as his bank account. And so he was potentially directing them to send Bitcoin and other assets owned by FTX customers to political donations for SBF and things like that. So that looks pretty bad. I wonder if these two news items aren't related. You know, the CEO getting fired and the fact that Prime Trust was moving funds around on behalf of SBF. Perhaps these two stories are connected. It's also possible that it's a shift in the overall business strategy for Prime. In September, they announced that they were exiting from their Fund America business, which they started early on. And it's kind of like a crowdfunding business. And they had a capital raise platform and they had some VC stuff. And they are just winding all of that up to focus just on Bitcoin. So you have the fact that there was these political money transfers. You have the fact that they're as as a business, they're transitioning from kind of like a uh, VC as a service platform to just Bitcoin. There could be kind of a correlation there. This uh, current CEO uh, stepped in in early 2021. So we're about, you know, just we're almost to the two year mark, I guess. Yeah. I think a collapse of prime trust would be a black swan event. I think a collapse of prime trust would devastate a lot of Bitcoin only businesses. Oh, are, so are we saying collapse though? We're not we're not fearmongering if we say that. Well, I don't see. I don't think so. See, I don't actually think it's very likely. I think this is more of a business realignment and getting a CEO who probably wasn't up to snuff. Right. They've said on social media that they have one to one funds, so they have a Satoshi to match every Satoshi pledge to a customer. That's actually another pattern we see in crypto businesses where because the market is growing so fast, they have a pretty unprofessional Yahoo team and then they grow really big and suddenly their CEO just doesn't cut it anymore. You know, he was an okay founder, but now you need a professional CEO that can manage a large organization. And I've heard this expressed from some TradFi people I know who've moved into the Bitcoin space who mentioned to me like, you know, we were seeing Dex funding decks where they had hodl written on the deck yeah what a joke don't write well, hodl in the deck if you want well, to make to a hodl out, joke this was the entire tech industry because money was easy and there was no due diligence done on these companies 
And probably even more importantly, the leadership did not have to actually perform for these companies to make revenue because they could just keep raising funds. Uh, I worked for a few of these and I was a, I was also a contractor for a couple of years during the peak of this. And I saw this pattern over and over and over again. The revenue does not come from the customers. The customer revenue base does need to be producing, but it does not actually even need to cover your monthly expense. The revenue comes from the venture fund. And you just need to demonstrate that long term, you have the potential to generate a good amount of money from these people that are paying you monthly as a SaaS platform, as for, as an example. You, I want to be clear about this. You don't even have to be making money. In fact, you could be losing millions of dollars as a business. But as long as you have customers that are paying on a monthly basis and you have the math that works out, you could raise $300 million if you have 700,000 users that are signed up. They don't even have to be paying. They just have to be signed up. Maybe they're on the free plan even. Yeah, that's a zero interest rate environment type of fundraising. And when that is the way you make money, you don't have to have good managers. You don't have to have good middle management. You don't have to have good leadership. And good managers are penalized because they're good at managing. They're not good at wooing investors and telling these ridiculous stories that appeal to starry-eyed investors who want to hear terms like disruption and whatever, platform and something, something. And you just got these Steve Jobs wannabes who could enunciate in a very, you know, in a passionate way, a a vision, and you got the money. You know, Sequoia uh, fell in love with FTX because Sam Bankman-Fried came up with the phrase, we want to be where everyone spends their next dollar. If it's a banana or it's Bitcoin, we want to be there when they spend their next dollar. And they that was all it took. They fell in love with that. And it's completely incoherent, that statement. It doesn't make any sense. So I think this actually leads pretty nicely into Arthur's piece called White Boy. And it's about SBF. I know we said we'd get SBF out of our system earlier, but this is a sort of essay that I really like because it adds context around something that happened. And spoiler alert here, and, and Arthur actually has this in his essay, if you believe in the story of American exceptionalism, that the United States is just this city on a hill, it's really great, it's a symbol for the rest of the world, and that's what you're comfortable with, and you don't want to question that, just skip to the next chapter, because that is not what this essay is about. Instead, Arthur is trying to explore what was the, the setup for Sam Bankman-Fried to trick so many people, to be taken so seriously? Why was Sequoia so uncritical when they looked at Sam? And if I could say, we're, we're kind of seeing it right now, right? He was on Good Morning America just a couple of days ago. He was on CNBC. He was on a New York Times panel. We're kind of seeing his approach and how he communicates. We're seeing its effect right now. And Arthur is the perfect place to do this takedown because Arthur and Sam are very similar. They're both traders. They both founded an offshore derivatives exchange, except Arthur was threatened with jail time and Sam stole billions of dollars and is chatting in a very friendly way with people on Good Morning America. Right. Well, perhaps Sam bought more politicians than Arthur did. There's also the fact that Arthur is black and Sam is white. And that's important here because Arthur's point is that the historical context of the United States is as a country with a caste system with elites and, you know, and the poor. And that caste system incorporated a racial element that was super important. 
He points out, basically, one view of the American Revolution is a group of wealthy, male, white, slave-owning land owners didn't like paying a fairly low tax rate, and they convinced large numbers of poor white people to commit domestic terrorism against the British. That's another way of saying the Boston Tea Party. Basically, in this model of American society, racism is actually really important because you have high wealth concentration, you have a political elite of rich white people, and you have a lot of poor white people. And how do you keep those poor whites in line? Well, it's pretty well documented that slavery and racism was an important part of that, because if you can convince poor white people that they're better off than slaves, they're higher in the social hierarchy. You know, they have an attachment to this social hierarchy because they see an outgroup below them. The real conflict in society comes from groups that realize that they're at the bottom of the social hierarchy and they have literally nothing to lose if they try to usually forcibly improve their political and economic status. That's called a rebellion. So the context of America is a country with elites on the coasts, coastal white elites, a lot of poor white people in the middle, and then a lot of racial outgroups, Black Americans, Chinese Americans, who, you know, literally weren't allowed to vote until the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So there's 200 years of a multiracial America where only white people can effectively vote. Now, what does this have to do with a Bitcoin podcast? This explains SBF's background. Coastal educated white, check. He's got professional parents who are part of the professional establishment, check. He's educated at a coastal top university, check. By the way, all the top schools in America are on the coast. It's interesting, right? And the bonus is he's a guy. So he he kind of has all the markers of the American elite political and economic class. And that enables him to sail through these investor meetings without ever being questioned. He just, he has all of the social characteristics of a successful American white male elite capitalist. And then he adds to that a sprinkling of effective altruism. So if you're on the left side of the political spectrum, you can kind of respect that. But on, but what's nice about effective altruism is because you're doing capitalism to give it away, you can be a ruthless business person and therefore you can get respect from everybody in the American establishment if you do the effective altruist thing. Right. In fact, I feel like what you just touched on there might be where I would give credit to Sam because I think I agree with everything there. He was sort of perfectly positioned and then he paired that with almost a movie casting like a stereotypical genius that would be into this kind of stuff. And he met he managed to pair that with an ability to understand how to navigate messaging depending on the audience that he's speaking to. And one of the things I've, I've I noticed Sam do quite frequently I noticed it a lot last night in the Twitter space. You can find on Twitter if you just search for like SBF. He flips between two individuals. One just doesn't really understand what's happening. There's a lot going on. You know, the very nature of the universe itself is super complex and really hard for me to kind of just cope with. And so I think some of these things just kind of happened. That's one version. And then there is the chart analysis, Sam. 
that can kick in. And he, when he, depending on his audience, he will switch into either mode, whatever he feels like lands with them the best. And he's very intelligent when he speaks into the financial perspective. He can get very deep and abstract very quickly. And I think the ability for him to wrap his head around that, and I think probably being raised by his parents, he was probably just exposed to that. That was probably just what he was around. He's very fortunate in that regard again. And so he was able to go and actually speak to that stuff when he needed to. And he continues to use it today in his apology tour as a way to kind of overwhelm his opponent. When they ask him something, he can kind of overwhelm them with abstract financial concepts and avoid answering the question. And when they've got when, when somebody who has financial chops and they come at him, he can kind of go the other direction about how complex and there's a lot going on. And there's just it's been a hard month, you know, and he's really good at that. And that is a skill set. And it reminds me of Vitalik because Vitalik has the exact same strategy to overwhelm people with esoteric details of a niche subject that no one knows anything about and then change lanes, move the goalpost when you're trying to corner him on another point. That's a great observation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just your typical venture capital hype master BS. And is this context, is this whole sort of, you know, racial history of the United States that leads to Sam Bankman-Fried, like super important for this story? I would say yes, because I think this is a great opportunity for Bitcoiners who, you know, maybe have kind of just looked at the space through a monetary or a technological perspective to broaden the view a little and say, you know, there's also a wider social and political historical perspective to what's happening in financial markets today. And racial politics plays into that as well. That has a lot to do with the patterns of wealth distribution and social hierarchy that literally have an effect on financial market prices. Because again, Arthur Hayes, Black Bitcoin founder, BitMEX never talked about doing an ICO. They were never welcome to the establishment to do that. Arthur had to do house arrest because he didn't have KYC. If it was just those merits on its own, though, then why wouldn't have Brian Armstrong, for example, have gotten the the SBF treatment? See, I think it's it is absolutely a component of it, but I don't think it explains the complete picture. And then there's there's probably also, to be honest with you, a bit of timing with the financial cycle, and also a bit of timing with where the media was in its willingness to talk about cryptocurrency. So there's a lot of confluences there. That, but, that's a good know, that, point. That Brian, but yeah, my my point being that Brian Armstrong, you know, if you just go by those metrics alone, should have been the crypto king years ago. Yeah, because I don't mean to make the the point too strongly because. Brian took a very different approach with Coinbase. They were always regulated in the US. They were always trying to be compliant. FTX was clearly problematic because they went to the Bahamas because there's basically no regulation there. They did token KYC so that they wouldn't run too afoul of US regulators. But, you know, if they really wanted to be compliant, why are you in the Bahamas? And so, and then obviously, um, Brian Armstrong is less of an innovator in terms of personal presentation than Sam Bankman-Fried, maybe we would say. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) I love that. He's your typical tech bro founder. Brian comes from Airbnb, I think. So he's relatively early to Bitcoin, but he's not like first generation Bitcoin or OG. And he came at Bitcoin from how do I create a Silicon Valley-esque tech startup? And he figured it out because he had a relationship with Silvergate Bank. And so he was the only US exchange to always have a banking relationship. And that was Coinbase's secret sauce. I mean, that was huge. And you have to also remember, just to kind of set the context, right? This was in the shadow 
of the Mt. Gox collapse. So Coinbase came along. There was actual managers who wore ties, who were actually like speaking the language of the banks and would allow you to connect a bank account. This, all of this was really innovative post Mt. Gox. Right. And it also has to do with sort of the market cycle because post Mt. Gox, what people wanted was a safe exchange that wouldn't rug them. And Coinbase provided that. But after a few years of Coinbase, everyone gets sick of their high fees and lack of extremely degen products. And then they're ready to go risk on again. And FTX suddenly appears to meet that demand. So you're right. There are a lot of factors in here. I just like the way that Arthur shoehorns a little bit of alternative American history into the conversation. Kind of fun. And I think, honestly, a perspective that is worth considering that I I really appreciated that perspective. And that's big coming from you because you generally don't like Arthur's provocative writing style. That's true. I I actually kind of have formed a policy of I'm not going to read it, but I'm just going to listen to what you say and then, you know, take your and go from that because I do have a hard time reading his stuff. But, you know, when, when he's not creating stories and making characters and, you know, creating epic journeys for them to explain something that's happening today and I don't have to spend 20 minutes weeding through that to get to the nut, then I have a bit of a, a better time digesting it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. That uh, King Arthur yeah, series. That was just the peak. That was the peak for me. That was yeah. the peak. I But I did like that imagery of um, Christine Lagarde as Joan of Arc. That was kind of funny. Yeah. And your telling of it, I enjoyed. So that was when I realized, oh, I can consume his content. I just have to consume it via dad. Maybe Arthur should sponsor us and we could do an episode every week where we just read his, yeah. his thing. Arthur's Corner. Arthur's Corner. <laughs> Get in touch, Arthur. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, 30,000 sats a week? I mean, what? I mean, that's not bad, right? That's a great deal. <laughs> For Arthur, I think it's 300,000. Okay, yeah, least. fair. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> should we just go back to back into our other long article of the week? Yeah, well, this is the one that felt like was one of those action movies that starts kind of slow and then it's just hit after hit after hit. This was, it's weird to say, but this was a thrilling read. It is actually a terrifying article. This is Lynn Alden's November 2022 newsletter, The Long-Term Fiscal Spiral. And she starts off with some charts that she's always shared. And she she, she brings back these charts in, in many different articles. And they have to do with the U.S. government fiscal surplus or deficit divided by GDP. And this is basically, is the U.S. government saving money or borrowing? And TLDR, they've been borrowing since, I think, 2004. And the amount borrowed is increasing. And she explains why the U.S. briefly had a fiscal surplus in the 90s. It was probably mainly driven by demographics. The U.S. workforce peaked in the 90s and then has shot down rapidly since then. In China coming online. Right, because the 90s were this disinflationary decade because Chinese labor hit the Mm -hmm. world market, pushed down labor prices. And you could probably argue there's a lot of efficiency gain just by improvements in technologies through the 90s, the internet, like email adoption, just inherent efficiencies that corporations and individuals gained that are in net deflationary. Would have been a great time to build up fiscal surpluses that could have been used as a rainy day fund. But instead, what do we do? We juice the economy even further and had the 2000 tech bubble pop, then the, was there a 2002 recession as well? And then the 2008? Yeah. Yeah. Shortly after 9-11. So 
Lynn kind of makes the point that in the neo-Keynesian economic theory that's supposed to govern government monetary and fiscal policy today, there's this idea that the government will cool the economy when it's running hot, and this will result in excess tax receipts that can be saved and spent on a rainy day. And then when the economy cools and goes into recession, the government will spend more. But she points out that the political incentives of government spending are such that the government really only runs medium to hot. They never actually cut budgets and save money because when you do that, you cut programs and people and voters hate that. And so politicians who want to be, quote unquote, fiscally conservative always get voted out of office. So the system self-selects for politicians that don't care about deficit spending or don't understand it, which is the same result. And as a consequence, public debt to GDP around the world, but she's focusing on the United States because it's the world reserve currency, continues to go up. And a factor of this public debt to GDP increasing is also reducing interest rates because there is an incentive for the central bank to push interest rates down to make financing huge fiscal deficits more sustainable. And Lynn's point is that people have been ringing the alarm on huge fiscal deficits since the late 1980s in the United States. In fact, the most successful third-party presidential candidate in U.S. history was Ross Perot, who ran a presidential campaign in the early 90s and actually got 19% of the popular vote as a third-party candidate. And his entire platform was fiscal austerity. He wanted to reduce the federal debt from 50% of GDP down to 30% of GDP. Well, we're currently over 100% of GDP. So the situation has clearly gotten out of control based on the perspective in the 90s. So what is Lynn's broader point? The broader point is that we're entering a period where this debt is going to begin to matter. And it hasn't mattered as much for the past 20 years because of the deflationary impulse of China entering the WTO in the 90s, the World Trade Organization, also because of the productivity gains of the internet and personal computer technologies and cell phones that sort of hit the streets in the late 90s to the 2010s and 2015. But we've also had financial repression since 2008. And part of financial repression, where the Federal Reserve has been keeping interest rates very low, is a way to allow the U.S. government to run larger fiscal deficits. And the problem is that demographics are shifted. And as a result, Social Security will have to sell off their Social Security trust, which is full of government bonds that Social Security absorbed while the U.S. government was issuing massive amounts of bonds. And as Social Security is drawn down, what does that mean? That means that the retired population is getting larger and they're no longer contributing to Social Security, which means that the labor force is also decreasing as well, which is highly related to government tax receipts. So basically, this is the debt spiral. The debt spiral is there's a lot of government debt and the interest rate on that debt is increasing 
as interest rates rise globally, but also the places to absorb that debt issuance are decreasing because Social Security is no longer saving, it's sort of spending, which means it's selling treasuries, while the labor force is shrinking and tax receipts are reducing for the U.S. government over time. And so this is actually the core of Lynn Alden's inflationary thesis. Her thesis is that these fiscal obligations of the U.S. government, mainly Social Security and other benefit spending, and also, of course, American military spending, which will apparently never be cut. If you try to cut military spending, any politician who does that gets voted out of office because it's unpatriotic or something. So essentially, the U.S. has no ability to reduce its spending, but its sources of income are shrinking, its debt payments are rising, and the only solution, which she believes will sort of really hit in the 2030s, is to monetize this debt via monetary policy, which means high inflation. Yeah, and I guess what I kind of took away from it, too, in the case of Social Security, is its sell-off mechanism is via treasuries, which means there's another seller of treasuries, and there's a lot of sellers of treasuries right now. So it, it not only is not able to meet its, say, by the mid-2030s, its guarantees, but it's also creating another kind of sell-off pressure, which generates another kind of debt generation pressure. There's some second-order effects there that are going to just increase the inflationary pressure. The thing that she writes here that struck me, just when we're talking about the Federal Reserve and how they're maybe going to decrease the rate or the the, the pace, as they would put it, of the rate hikes, but they're going to continue rate hikes for a while. Well, Lynn writes, quote, with over 30 trillion in debt outstanding, each 100 basis point rise in weighted average interest rate adds about 300 billion to the annual interest expense. And the problem is the debt isn't standing still, as she writes. So as the debt goes up and the interest rates go up, it's a compounding issue and it, it gets out of control. Like when So we're talking about $30 trillion today, but if you look at what's on the books and what the government is due to pay just in existing programs with existing spending, which you know is only going to increase, but if you look at existing commitments, uh, that debt's going to go up, right? We could be, in a few years, we could be talking about a $40 trillion debt. Well, now you have a $40 trillion debt and you're also raising the rate. And so both things are going up at the same time. Yeah, another way to put that is that the more buyers of U.S. Treasuries there are, the lower the interest rate on the U.S. Treasuries. So the Social Security Fund having to sell treasuries to give baby boomers their retirement benefits, that just means that interest rates, all things equal, will rise because the Social Security Fund can no longer absorb U.S. government debt and create demand for it. The other trend is that foreign central banks and foreigners seem to be reducing their U.S. government debt holdings. And there are many reasons for that. One has to do with the Russia sanctions and any government that thinks they might run afoul of the United States, which, by the way, is everybody, because even Germany and England run afoul of the United States sometimes. So it's not safe to hold huge numbers of treasuries if you can be sanctioned by the U.S., if you're holding their debt. So that's part of the shift away from treasuries. Um, And that's interesting because it's basically a a canary in the coal mine that the U.S. dollar is not really working as an international settlement currency anymore. Yeah, that is. That's the message you take from it. And then I think the other thing that you mentioned before we started recording that hits me as I reread this now 
and again, not fear mongering, just looking at the numbers, this isn't like a decade out thing. This is a, perhaps something that kicks off considerably sooner because if we are going to go into a recession, and if you just look at the last year, just capital gains tax alone are way down. And not a lot of people have been talking about this, but I think it's something you and I have been thinking about is the last couple of years were fantastic for capital gains taxes. And that meant good revenue for the government. It meant good revenue for states. You know, I think maybe once on the show, we mentioned that California is doing uh, an energy stimulus starting actually last month. They begin sending out thousand dollar checks. And I looked into it because I was curious, how can they afford to do this? Because they have like a $260 million hole in some of in some of their state benefits program. So how can they afford to do this? This money is coming from excess from the capital gains tax revenue. They're taking that capital gains tax revenue and using it to give people an energy stimulus to help them with their energy costs. And that to me is pretty striking. I think that's a microcosm of what we see happening here. Right. And, and there are interesting clawbacks with the California cap gains, because if you say move to Texas during the pandemic, oh, sure. They're still going to try and claw back those cap gains over the next couple of years. What you see here is playing out at the federal level. It seems like a, a silly short term move. So you you give people an energy stimulus while you have some capital gain tax excess this year. But 2022 and 2023, you're probably going to have a huge hit in your tax revenue, especially capital gains. And you'll wish you've just saved that money. I mean, I don't want to sound cynical here, but I think that these are short term political incentives, because if you don't give the energy stimmy check, then you get voted out of office. But if you do give it, you get to stay in office and then you have to deal with the increased deficit that that caused. So it's sort of a lose-lose situation in my view. What's happening in California is kind of what's sort of playing out on the federal stage here is we've made some short-term choices for the pandemic, right? And now we're going to deal with some long-term consequences. And while we're dealing with all of that, at the same time, we're, we're making some of those spending choices. We're about to have a couple of years of probably a lot lower tax revenue at the federal level as well. It's kind of the same thing. Two thoughts. One is that every time there's a recession, the government deficit problem gets worse because recessions mean, like you're saying, lower tax revenue, but they also mean there's political pressure for bailouts. And the last 10 years have demonstrated that there's no check on bailouts. There's always like there's no check and balance against bailouts. There's always going to be bailouts. No, in fact, now the common knowledge is, or I guess the common philosophy is go hard, go in with lots of money. Don't undershoot. That was the lesson from 2008 is don't undershoot, go over, overshoot. Exactly. And then the, the second piece is, well, what about the mainstream view that inflation is peaked and we're going to see some quote unquote disinflation or prices are going to stop going up for a little bit because we're entering a recession. Well, Lynn agrees temporarily. Her point has always been, if you look into the past, inflation is incredibly volatile. So you have one year of 8%, the next year is 2%, the next year is 6 the next year is negative 3 Like It's very volatile. And so it means that we're going to see people calling the top on inflation every year or two. There's going to be people who will take a disinflation, deflation position, and they will be right 
for a couple months or maybe even a year. Lynn's calling the whole decade. She's calling a longer term view. And I think the reason she does that is because her investment strategy has a three to five to 10 year payoff. She's more interested in a sort of longer investment window. She does some tactical stuff, but she's she's interested in these longer periods because her view is that since I think around 2018, macroeconomics seem to be the drivers of economic growth at this point. It's less about what individual companies and technologies and government policies do. It's more about the world as a whole. And there are some structural reasons for that that she gets into in other articles. So the TLDR is this is very much in line with the Bitcoin thesis because monetizing government deficits, how do you pay for that? Well, you reduce internationalization of capital, you gate your economy, you make it hard to send money in and out, you add additional taxes that people don't have a choice about paying, more capital gains, more property taxes. And Bitcoin is a great asset in that environment because it's resistant to all of these things. You can be taxed, but your Bitcoin has to be voluntarily surrendered. So it's different than bank accounts or owning a house or owning a brokerage account because those things can be taxed without your consent. With Bitcoin, you at least have the option to disagree, perhaps. I think, too, one of the kind of low-level lizard brain lessons we learn from these types of collapses at FTX, especially when people had an opportunity to withdraw, that is a real demonstration of Bitcoin's core advantage over gold. If a gold-holding institution is lying to you or they're collapsing, you can't jump on your phone or launch a web browser and move your gold out in 30 seconds. But you can do that with Bitcoin, and this is proving it. So there's, it's, it seems really bad, but if you were to zoom out in 10 years and look back and go, you know, one of the lessons is, is when you own that scarce asset Bitcoin, it's immediately movable. You have control over that. If you get in, you can move it out of that institution if you lose faith in it. I was listening to a, a macro economist guy, and he was going on about how great gold is. And then he kind of just mentions that, you know, this institution just holds his gold for him. And that's fine as long as you have faith in that institution. But if you ever lost faith in that institution, it'd be nice to be able to immediately remove your gold and store it locally on your hard drive or store it in a cold wallet. It's just such a boomer institutional view. This guy's buying gold coins and he's storing them at the mint. Okay. It's like buy the gold ETF if you're going to do that. Why bother with the coins if you're not going to bury them in your own backyard? You know exactly who I'm talking about. In the short term, these FTX things look bad for the quote unquote crypto industry. But in the long term, they're demonstrable lessons that Bitcoin is truly under the user's control who are able to get it out of there and move it into cold storage. And the fact that we just look at the blockchain right now and we see historic levels of Bitcoin. I don't know, Dad, it's, it's somewhere between 86 and 80 percent, 88 percent, somewhere in the 80 percent range of Bitcoin is now being hodled in individual wallets and off the exchanges. And the Bitcoin on the exchanges is down to the levels it was in 2017. And the fact that the users have the power to do that with that asset at the moment they choose is a feature that gold can never compete with. And this leads perfectly into the Lawfare blog. Lawfare, uh, as in warfare, but with law. And the title of the article is The Embridge to Somewhere. Central Bank is Having Its Sputnik Moment. And just some context, Sputnik was the first human-created satellite. It was this little silver globe, very small, 
uh, you could hold it in your arms. I mean, it was bulky, but and it had four little antennas and the Soviet Union blasted it into space. I want to say in like night. Everybody knows who Sputnik is, right? Really? Does everyone know that? I think so. I'm not sure. The Zoomers might not know about Sputnik. All right. I like that you're punching up and down this week, though. Good on you. (laughs) 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 But it was just this beeping little ball circling the Earth. It didn't really do anything, but it incited a panic. It basically inspired the U.S. space race because the popular view was, oh, my God, it could be a nuclear bomb. The Soviets are going to blow us up from space, yada, yada. So central banking seems to also be in a panic around CBDCs. And as Bitcoiners, we know that the real source of this panic is Bitcoin, because as Chris points out, you can custody it. It has these international permissionless policies that are just insane when viewed from a legacy system perspective. Or put another way, when viewed from a middleman perspective, who gets a piece of that action when you move things across borders? And so the goal of central bank digital currencies is to be the middleman again. And one issue with that is because CBDCs are all based around this idea of how do we centrally control all the economic activity of our nation, they have a serious flaw, which is how does this system interface with other nations that have another central bank digital currency? And previous solutions are, well, we can just use the traditional banking system as a bridge between international economies. But that's really stupid because it's like using a horse and buggy to bridge to computer networks. It's like using the wrong technology. It's using an old, slow technology to bridge to super fast, high frequency technologies. And so that is obviously inefficient. The BIS has this project called MBridge, basically a cross-border payments and forex trading solution using CBDCs. And it's basically a permission blockchain where all of the banks involved are running nodes on it. And there's sort of tiered access. It's not something that individuals would ever be allowed to see or use. It's an entirely institutional project. But to be frank, it is better than current correspondent banking in terms of speed of settlement. And so you're getting maybe a second or minute level settlement on international transactions if you can participate in this system instead of it taking four to five days or a week using traditional swift messaging slash wire transfer technologies. So why is this important? The reason it's important is that so many countries are yellowing into this. The Bank of China has their e-Chinese Yuan project. Hong Kong is doing something. I think they're actually directly involved with Embridge, Thailand, the UEE. There seems to be a lot of countries representing fairly large populations that are interested in this technology. And my TLDR is that this actually relates to the long-term debt spiral. Technologies like central bank digital currency and a permissioned international transfer system that's even more centralized than our current SWIFT wire transfer messaging system for international payments will be very, very useful for closing capital accounts and locking funds into national economies where the funds can be confiscated via inflation or taxation. This seems like a massively complicated undertaking. So this M-Bridge has to work between all these different esoteric CBDC platforms. I mean, which some of which might be entirely different code bases with entirely different limitations, restrictions, and capabilities and feature sets. What an incredibly complicated project. It really makes one wonder if it's even possible 
for a government, you know, which would no, uh, no doubt be contractors for a government uh, driven project to actually be functional. And I suppose that, you know, they don't have to actually have it be truly secure and truly fully functional because, you know, if you were to exploit it in any kind of way, it would be a, a, obviously a crime. But it's a it's a fascinating technological problem. And if I were to divorce myself from the obvious ship coinery that's happening here, it feels like the ultimate altcoin. But it, it almost seems inevitable. They're never going to replace their own currencies with Bitcoin, right? I just can't see it happening. I could see them having it as one of the reserve assets one day, hopefully. Um, I could see it as a as a as a high priced asset in different countries, but I could never see countries, you know, going to a SAT standard. It just gives them it just takes away too much control. It's too key to how current governments are architected. So when I think about all of those motivations being applied to a CBDC, and then I think about a system, Embridge here in this case, trying to bridge all of those so that way you could move between chains. I would love to know about the technology platform that it's making this possible. It, it seems inconceivable to me. Well, it actually looks a lot like your standard altcoin, shipcoin bridge. And so there's this concept of a bridge from DeFi and from altcoin chains. And it's this way to you send money into the bridge on Solana and it pops out on Cardano or something like that. And the money gets locked up in the bridge. Yeah. But the thing is, the bridge is a custodian. Well, that'll be the role of the banks, I guess. The banks will basically be bridge custodians. It's really like some sort of infrastructure on a blockchain that's run by an unregistered bank. That's what bridges in DeFi are. And Bitcoin solves this bridge problem or could solve this problem using something like drive chains, because the way that a drive chain works is there's only ever Bitcoin. But when you send it into the drive chain, what you're doing is you're sending Bitcoin into a special address on the Bitcoin blockchain and it just stays there. But the drive chain software can see that drive chain address. And when coins go in, they pop out on the drive chain and then you can have all sorts of fun on the drive chain and then send them back to the special drive chain address that then causes them to pop out on the Bitcoin blockchain. It's obviously more complicated. So the way to do a safe bridge without a trusted third party is very complicated. Only Bitcoin has a potential solution. Everyone else is using custody, but that doesn't matter for Embridge and the BIS because central banks are built around custody. They're built around being the trusted third party that runs the system. And that, I think, will be their downfall because this leads to essentially the failure, I think, of modern economic thinking and modern monetary policy, which is an idea that a single institution, a group of quote unquote smart people in a room, let's talk to Alameda Research, how did it go being the smartest people in the room? Not great, but the idea that a group of smart people can guide the global economy or even guide a national economy. And that is preposterous. It's very not humble. It's the opposite of staying humble and stacking sats. Yeah. You know, so what's an alternative? Well, I think an alternative is having much more modest goals, having goals like perhaps price stability. That seems like a very reasonable goal. The German central bank, the Bundesbank, has had the goal of price stability for about 40 years now. It's gone really great for them up until recently. They've actually done a great job. And I think that there are a lot of examples of institutions with very limited mandates that focus on a couple specific things 
things that they decided might be important, being very successful. Whereas the U.S. Federal Reserve, which has this broad mandate to ensure full employment, whatever that means, ensure stable prices, which is never defined, so we don't really know what that means. And then they also have this shadow mandate of maintaining the functioning of the U.S. Treasury market, whatever that means. So I guess this is an ideological point. I'll stop. Sorry. Oh, I liked it. I was on it. I was on board for it. You mentioned Germany had been doing really well until recently. Well, kind of what went wrong recently was a bit of the energy policy. And there is a neighbor of Germany's that is also potentially suffering and has put out a warning that uh, they may have to temporarily ban the use of electric vehicles to reduce electricity usage due to supply constraints. And of course, this is in contrast with the stated policy of the government, which was to ramp up EVs to 50% of new car sales by 2025. But the issue is energy got scarce and winter is coming. And I think we kind of saw this one coming. It's pretty wild. Basically, Switzerland imports all their energy, both electricity and gas. And as energy prices have spiked in Germany due to reliance on Russian gas and poor energy policies, specifically around having an anti-nuclear power policy, prices have spiked in Germany. On the other side, you've got France, which leaned into nuclear power in the 70s, but hasn't invested sufficiently in maintaining their nuclear power infrastructure. And currently, a huge number of their reactors are offline because they're basically first or second generation reactors that have been in continuous operation for 40 to 50 years. And they all kind of have the same design and therefore the same structural problems. And so, and they were all built at the same time. So they all need maintenance at the same time. So prices of electricity are spiking in France as well. So Switzerland's getting it on both sides. And and it's not just a matter of, wow, electricity is expensive now, because if you just had expensive electricity, fine, charge your electric car, it's just going to cost you 100 euros to charge up the car. Instead, what's going on is they're saying, we might actually have blackouts. And so we need you to just use less, which means maybe not charging your car or only when necessary. Yeah, in fact, they, they have restrictions that they will probably have to put in place. Um, and the quote is when it's a, quote, absolutely necessary journey, you can take the EV when these uh, restrictions are in place. That's pretty intense. And, you know, I, as a Bitcoiner, my spidey sense gets a little tingled because I see us making a lot of silly decisions here in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know if you follow the local story for better or for worse. The largest dam shutdown in the history of the United States of America is taking place between Washington and California. And California is about to shut down four hydroelectric dams. And Washington is also looking at shutting about four hydroelectric dams down um, for salmon. The Snake River dams? Yeah. And that's, yep, some of them. Yep. And, and I mean, I don't want to really want to get into that. It, it, but what I do want to kind of talk about is how it kind of represents my frustration, like the shutting down of the hydro dams or the mandates, because the West Coast also has similar mandates about EVs um, and about how gas vehicles won't be allowed on the West Coast after five, 10 years from now. That all feels premature because we haven't fixed the grid yet. We haven't added supply yet. We can't be taking away power sources and adding net users of power without also supplying power. And I'm very frustrated in how it seems like the policies are incentivizing the use of power and consumers to switch over to EVs, especially here on the West Coast. But the policymakers aren't doing the necessary steps to increase the power infrastructure. And where they are actually investing in new power, it generally tends to be less dense power that doesn't really replace 
the stuff they're shutting down. And I think we're seeing this, how it has dramatically impacted places like Switzerland and Germany. And it just kind of is alarming to me that we don't seem to be observing those lessons and refining our policies. Like we're moving forward with the dam closures, even though we don't have replacements for those sources of power. Like here in the state of Washington, one of the dams that's getting shut down provides power to 75,000 homes, and they're just going to have to buy that from somewhere else and import that power now. Well, I think it's a little different in Washington state because there is a lot of excess hydropower here. I feel like when we start making these kinds of energy decisions, like in Switzerland, could you imagine trying to, to run a mining operation, any large scale mining operation in Switzerland right now when they're telling people not to drive their Teslas? If you look at their guidelines, the level one guideline is don't charge your car and we're turning off the sauna in hotels. Level two is we're turning off escalators. Level three is you're not allowed to run a gaming console at home. I mean, you'd be crazy to do any energy intensive activity in Switzerland. This is telling us that maybe Switzerland has developed beyond its natural state, and maybe they need to return to being sheep herders in the mountains or something, because they don't seem to be able to produce power for a modern lifestyle. I think we should probably pivot now to the crypto dad stuff, because clearly the problem isn't actually crypto. The problem is that it was just too centralized. And if we just decentralized it, then there wouldn't be all these scammers. And that has truly been the narrative we've been hearing over and over again. So let's walk through a little story. There is a DeFi project out there called Anchor. Um, I have to be honest with you, I'm not super familiar with it, but they had a flaw and it was exploited for over 5 million. It was pretty significant and they had a token that was pegged to the BNB token. So they had the ABNB token. So basically a derivative of something that's made out of thin air. And uh, it's a pretty bad situation, of course, because as always, the people who are left holding the bags, about $500 million worth, are retail, just average people. But around the same time, an unknown group of attackers, and we don't really know if they were the same group or a different group that just took advantage of a bad situation, but they discovered the Helio platform, H-E-L-I-O, which is a staking platform for BNB, had a little bit of an issue. And that these oracles that provide these different chains with uh, different kinds of data, like price data, um, rate information, they're supposed to be like these authoritative sources of information that you can trust and that the chain can get information. And these oracles fetch information from outside the chain, right? Because they're looking for things that the chain needs to be aware of and they're bringing it. And with that brings an exploit framework. It brings an attack vector because it's looking for that information. Um, and Anchor, while it was having its plunge and there was a lot going on, a second exploit was being carried out on Helio. And it seems that the attackers acquired some 183,000 A, B, and B, C tokens uh, in the early Asian mornings of trading on Friday. So actually, I guess today, technically still. And they were able to delay the information that the Oracle received in that ABNB token. So they delayed the information that the Oracle received. So the Helio chain had old information on price action. And so they were able to sell at the old price levels, which was way higher because it was before the plunge, and basically arbitrage the difference because of the Oracle getting essentially attacked, thus providing delayed information, thus providing higher price information that was before the plunge. And so they made off with a ton of money. And so they took their an original 5 million, if it's the same attackers, we don't know for sure. And they ended up with a total of 15 million playing this little stunt. Brilliant. And of course, code is law. So 
have at it, right? System was working as designed, I guess. Yeah, it's DeFi, buddy. It's fine, right? I mean, um, we've really seen this post FTX. It took them a few days. You know, every, you could really see, like, especially the Ethereum bros, they were rocked by this FTX stuff. Oh, man. And the Solana crew just completely rocked. And it took them, almost took them a week. Not quite. But within a week of the FTX collapse, they started coming up with this new narrative of, well, you see, the problem was is FTX was just recreating centralized finance. And the future, well, the future is decentralized finance. And our mistake was just re-implementing centralized finance with decentralized technologies. And all we need to do to solve this problem is decentralize everything. And I think uh, Cordano's founder probably put that to its finest point. Um, he, he was being interviewed by the Financial Times at a crypto and digital asset summit. God. And he said, quote, the crypto market's never been stronger in terms of its offerings to the TradFi, that's traditional finance, marketplace, and to the world as a whole. It's never been stronger, Dad. But he says the recent FTX collapse has demonstrated the need for decentralized proof of reserves. And he also added, quote, the failures we're having aren't failures of protocols. They aren't failures of DeFi. They're failures of trust and they're failures of regulation and they're failures of people. We need to move from companies and people to protocols. Oh, that's perfect for Charles to say because he's affinity scamming with the Bitcoin protocol because Cardano, yes, there's a protocol there. Yes, technically anyone can build on it. At the same time, Charles, if you control the majority of the development on that chain, the majority of the supply, the majority of the validation, isn't this just a thin layer of decentralized paint on top of a private centralized company? It's in fact, it's a more extreme version of the Ethereum problem. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's an interesting trend because I have heard in the post-mortem on FTX this, oh, we just need more DeFi. And we have DeFi and DeFi is a hot mess of exploits. And what is the fundamental problem here? And I would say that the fundamental problem is that no blockchain has improved on Bitcoin, absolutely. What they've managed to do is add more features by weakening on-chain security and decentralization. That's the secret behind every other blockchain project. And you can add even more features if you provide a weak solution to incredibly hard problems that are currently unsolved, like the Oracle problem. This is a known problem on blockchains. And the issue is, if I create a blockchain protocol, it is only aware of what happens on the blockchain, right? I mean, it's not like blockchains have eyes. They don't peek out from the nodes they're running on and try to understand the world. They're incapable of that. They're just software. So an Oracle is a service, a person, another piece of software that somehow provides data about something else to the blockchain. And of course, the blockchain doesn't know really what the Oracle is providing. This is just software. And as a result, you can create crazy systems like this Anchor project, this ABNB token, this ABNC token, this Helio protocol, this Hay stablecoin that's also built on it. I mean, you know, it's just this crazy zoo of tokens made out of nothing. And the way that they're interacting is using these very fragile software stacks built on move fast and break thing 
move fast and break things solutions like crappy centralized oracles. And an oracle is a central trusted third party and DeFi attackers have learned to exploit them. And even just overwhelming them and slowing them down can be an attack that is effective. And in this case, net you $10 million. So the idea that this system can somehow provide a viable alternative to trusted third parties like FTX is a little dubious. That said, DeFi on Bitcoin exists because, like I said last week, our boy Barack has built an automated market maker on Liquid. It works. It doesn't need an Oracle. It's just a two pools of assets, Liquid Bitcoin, Liquid Tether. You put some Liquid Tether in, you get the Liquid Bitcoin out. You put the Liquid Bitcoin in, you get the Liquid Tether out. Pretty simple. And obviously you and I would love to see solutions that are peer-to-peer for Bitcoin. I'm a big fan of RoboSats. I try to mention it all the time. I guess maybe you could consider that a breed of DeFi, although nobody does. And I'd love to see more solutions of that nature, obviously. But to me, the fundamental problem here seems to be the incentives of the individual people participating. When I'm on RoboSats, the incentives are pretty clear. Somebody either wants to buy some sats or they want to sell some sats. On DeFi, things are a little more abstract. And I think when you look at a lot of the incentives to participate in DeFi, they all kind of compound and they cause trouble. I was looking overall just to see how quote unquote DeFi is doing in the bear market. And there's a website, DeFiLlama.com, which tracks a lot of different metrics. And one of the metrics, the core metric that I think probably matters is the total value locked into a DeFi system. And uh, back in the uh, good old days of November 2021, you know, just over a year ago now, there was almost $180 billion. In fact, at one point, it got up to 180 point, well, it kind of depends where you look, but almost $185 billion was in DeFi. That's a good chunk of change, considering at the point in time, the entire crypto market was valued around $1.2 trillion. And so if $180 billion of that is in DeFi, that's, you know, not everything, but it's notable. It's like 15%. That's a lot. Today, as we record, a year later, just one year later, there's 42 billion locked up in DeFi. That's a pretty significant drop. And all of the projects are down. People have been wrecked. TVL is a pretty easy to game metric because you can do the tricks of you create your own token, you issue 1% of it, you manipulate the market so it's trading at $100 a token. Now the 90 million you own are worth $9 billion. But of course, only 1% is trading. So it's actually worthless, but you can play a little accounting. And I think TVL is vulnerable to that sort of trickery. But DeFi, you know, DeFi will solve it. It's not a people problem. It's a technology problem, which of course is never the case. It's always a people problem. It's always a people problem. Speaking of technology problems, Coinbase seems to have a little bit of an issue with NFTs on their iOS app. What's going on there, Chris? I don't like this. I mean, I couldn't give a crap about NFTs. I don't care if my gas pump or Coinbase is selling them to me. But I do kind of worry about where this could lead for Bitcoiners. So Coinbase has removed support from their iOS wallet for NFTs. Now that, if this, I mean, imagine this during the bear, imagine this during the bull run, this would be huge news. So Apple's claiming, according to Coinbase, that Apple believes they should have a cut of the gas fees required to send NFTs and that anything like that needs to be purchased through Apple's in-app system where they get their 30% cut. So when you're paying the gas fees, that fee to send that NFT needs to be paid via Apple's payment system where Apple gets their cut. And so Coinbase has just removed the ability to interact with NFTs. So they write in one of their tweets, quote, the biggest impact from this policy change is on the iPhone. Users that own NFTs. If you hold an NFT in a wallet on an iPhone, Apple just made it a lot harder to transfer that NFT to other wallets 
or gift it to friends or family. In other words, it's stuck in your wallet. How much is it worth now? And this is honestly kind of scary because you wonder what happens for things like sending sats, that kind of stuff. Well, Apple is a closed platform and they're like the, I think you talk a lot about this on Coder Radio. Apple's basically like the Silicon Valley mafia. Everyone needs to kiss the ring to be, to have their app on the Apple iOS app store platform. And you need to pay whatever Apple tells you you need to pay to be on that platform because iOS users are such a valuable group of customers. Elon just found this out with his complaints about Apple and Twitter, and he had to bend the knee immediately and apologize basically to Tim Cook in person. They they did a little thing there. And Coinbase is no different, right? Yeah, and they write, this is akin to Apple trying to take a cut of every fee for an email that gets sent over an open internet protocol. There is something to that, right? Because I, I assume when you pay for gas fees to send your NFT, that fee is being withdrawn from an Ethereum wallet, and that's all being that's all being handled within the Coinbase ecosystem on the Coinbase backend. There's nothing really that's even being processed with a traditional financial institution. I'm not even sure where Apple thinks they have grounds here. I almost wonder, we're either going to see one of two possibilities. One, Apple reverses course, and next week, some point, Coinbase gives us an update that they've restored the functionality. Or two, we're going to see Apple get more and more aggressive about this, and they're going to come after all kinds of different use cases of cryptocurrency in the App Store. And there's some really great wallets in there. Obviously, too, right? I mean, Apple is a public company. They've discovered that they've oversaturated the world with iPhones. No one wants to buy a $1,400 iPhone every year. I mean, even you are using Graphene OS, and you've been the biggest Apple customer since forever, right? This is my thesis. I mean, I've bought an iPhone while I was on their subscription program for every time since iPhone 7. And now I got a Pixel 7 and Graphene OS and I'm transitioning away because I just, I agree. I think Apple benefited from loose, easy money in multiple ways and how they built their company and how they financed acquisition of some of the best talent that they have, like their chips department. Um, and I think it, it gave them the ability to become the absolute monster machine that they are now. And it gave the consumers the comfort and flexibility to buy a luxury technology product. And I agree. My thesis is that period of time is over. They now have to pivot to other sources of monetization. And why wouldn't you extract from the app store? It's the ultimate middleman position. It's the same thing as these banks. They have a beautiful middleman position. And the beautiful thing about Graphene OS is you can add just or or not all if you want, just or as little Google as you want. And you can use an alternative app store if you want, or you can use the Play Store and everything is sandboxed. You know, you can just turn it up to as much corporate influence as you want and you can set the dial there and peg it there. And I really like that. And it, in my opinion, the, the bar should be any mobile device that's a serious contender, you should be able to install your own software through some means. And that's just not that's just not something Apple agrees with. And that gives them absolute control over the platform. Breach. Breach. I'm a Graphene OS user. I think it's fantastic. It's uh, it's like a no-brainer. Graphene OS on Android is like Tails OS on Linux for doing something sensitive with a private key. It just makes sense. It makes me more comfortable about using a mobile wallet app, too. I mean, I used to have to trust the app, but my core issue has been I don't trust the operating system, the platform, the vendor, my ability to control it. I don't want to put buns on there if I don't have that kind of control. And now Graphene OS has given me that. 
This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by my pod, Linux Unplugged. And at 486, we went deep into my switch to Graphene OS, moving from iOS and what I'm doing for my photos, my calendar, all of my backend stuff, and the different things I'm trying out to replace iMessage and FaceTime. It's a journey. Linux Unplugged episode 486 covers it all. You can find that and all the great shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Or search for Linux Unplugged in any podcast app. This week's Bitcoin education is going to be a focused look at channel jamming attacks, which were detailed in Bitcoin Optech newsletter 228. Chris, are you familiar with channel jamming? You know, I have to be honest, I, I didn't realize that this was such a thing. Um, I kind of naively assumed that the Lightning Network was a little bit more robust than this. This is a problem with Bitcoin itself. The fact that a decentralized network needs to be able to accept connections from random computers that are also apparently running Bitcoin. And therefore, you have to be worried about denial of service attacks or DDoS, right? Oh, sorry, that's DOS. DDoS would be distributed denial of service. But the Lightning Network has the exact same problem because you can basically send a payment and only if it succeeds does the payment go through. You can costlessly spam the network with payments that you know won't succeed as a way to potentially knock nodes offline. There are two ways that lightning channels are constrained and therefore vulnerable to channel jamming attacks. There's liquidity jamming, where an attacker sends money to themselves using your channels, but delays accepting the payment. And this kind of locks your channel, locks all the liquidity in your channel. But this means the attacker has to also tie up their own funds. So, you know, there's a cost to that attack. But I think maybe this, the more worrying one is HTLC jamming attacks. Should we discuss what an HTLC is? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, tell me what an HTLC is. The HTLC, hash time locked contract, is actually kind of the basis of Lightning payments. It's a conditional payment. It's used in Lightning channels. And uh, also, it's used in a lot of other technologies like uh, cross-chain atomic swaps, zero-knowledge type systems. This is basically a, a construct that has become very useful inside sort of blockchain payments technology. A hashed time lock contract. Right. And so there are kind of two bits to this, a payment clause and a refund clause. And the payment clause is secured with a hash lock and the refund clause is secured with a time lock. And this is why it's hash time locked contract. So hash lock contract and a time lock contract together. So to open the hash lock and get the payment inside, the receiver needs to reveal the pre-image to the hash that is encoded in the contract. To open the time lock and receive a refund, you just need to wait until the time lock expires. How does this work in Lightning? Well, essentially what's going on is the receiver, because the HTLC, this hash time lock contract, was generated using the receiver's invoice or the receiver's node public key, the receiver has the private key that was used to generate part of this payment. And therefore, when the receiver receives the payment, they can generate the pre-image to this hashed in the, in the contract because you know they have a key that was used to create the contract, if that right. makes sense. Yep. And that's why Lightning is interactive because you need some of my details to send a Lightning payment to me. That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Okay, so that might seem a little complicated. Don't worry about it. If you hear that 20 more times, it'll begin to make sense. So how do you use an HTLC to jam a lightning channel? Well, it turns out that most lightning channels basically have a maximum number of, of simultaneous HTLCs of 483. I have no idea why it's this number. I bet that that's like a, like a binary number or a hexadecimal number that makes sense. That's my guess. And I'm sure that that's just some, some value inside the lightning protocol that, that creates a maximum capacity of these channels. And essentially, if you can send lots of small payments totaling 483 per channel, you can actually tie up all the HTLC slots in a node's channel and lock the node without spending any money. So this HTLC attack is really a, a denial of service attack, very low cost to perform and potentially quite effective at preventing nodes from transacting. Mm, here we go. Another learning to fix lightning in production moment, right? This And this one's frustrating to me because it feels like the barrier of entry to actually commit a DDoS on a node is pretty low, right? You're not having to commit millions of dollars. A lot of times when we talk about these types of attack vectors on the Bitcoin network, part of me kind of just laughs it off and goes, okay, have a good time burning millions of dollars trying to pull that off. But in this case, it doesn't sound like it would take very much uh, money or sats, I suppose is the case maybe. And that's, that's a frustrating hard limit they have there. And I wonder if there isn't some sort of queue that they could perhaps develop that would essentially open up infinite slots and queue them based on how much memory you have available or something. Like it seems like there should be a technological solution, but it's not implemented today. And now that we know this concept's out there, if this follows the previous things that we've seen, we'll start over time seeing people actually bang on this and force the developers' hands to actually fix it. And the proposed solution in Bitcoin Optech is really interesting and I think speaks to a technological challenge with these HTLC limits. Mm. Because Antoine Riard is basically proposing a credential-based reputation system so that if you have a higher reputation, we let you through. And if you have a lower reputation, you might be a DDoSer and we rate limit you or something like that. Interesting. In my view, that's like a bad system, right? Because you're, you're adding on another layer because you can't really solve the denial of service problem. Well, and how do they derive that reputation? Like, the, I, I believe the network takes into account your uptime of a channel today already. And of course, it's taking into account the liquidity of the channel. So in some ways, you could already argue there are already reputational type or reputation adjacent type factors on the network at play already. So this would almost be stacking on top of that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I don't hmm. think that those reputational elements that exist today are sufficient to right. filter between good actors and bad actors. Yeah. So that would be the impetus to create a new layer of reputation. This actually ties into a talk that Adam Gibson gave at Adopting Bitcoin, which was about a very similar issue, a way to create sort of anonymous decentralized reputation tokens to prevent these sorts of DDoS attacks. Because if you can use Lightning privately, it means you can perform DDoS attacks. And so reputation is tricky because it, it requires identity. And that might be a potential attack vector. So this is a huge, complicated problem. I'll also include a link to Adam's talk. It's uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, and it's, it's another sign that things are still a bit early. Lightning has a lot of potential to be a great payments network, but early adopters are going to sort these things out. And, um, you know, I remember just 10 years ago, even, it felt like we were just on the verge of more people taking payments and we were just going to do it all on chain. And things just take a while. But the reality is, 
is, I was just looking at the stats, actually. The Lightning Network overall is doing extremely well. Even when the overall kind of Bitcoin network volume is down on chain, Lightning Network is growing. On a total locked value on Lightning is up. Total movement of sats is up. Amount of podcasts that are doing value for value and taking boosts is up. It's like to 10,000 podcasts now. It's like something like 72 Bitcoin or on the Lightning Network now, something like that. Um, it's looking really good, but it means we're going to hit more stuff. But doesn't that seem so small in the scope of yes. thousands of wrapped Bitcoin in a DeFi exploit? Yes, but it's it's but it's hard, you know, it's like hard, you know, accountable money. There's I'd take 72 of that over 72 million of the <laughs> the paper stuff. Right. And well, and also what's happening is that lightning is a pipe. The amount of lightning in channels is how big the pipe of lightning payments is. It's different than these financial speculative games where you have to lock up a bunch and then earn a percentage on that. That's a great way to think of it is the lightning network is a series of tubes. And the amount of Bitcoin in the Lightning Network represents the size of the tubes. And that brings us to feedback. Remember, you can always get in touch with the show at Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter or Bitcoin Dad Pod at ProtonMail.com. Also consider joining our community matrix channel using a client like Element, which you can run on your desktop or on a mobile phone. And our matrix channel is generously supported by Jupiter Broadcasting. Thank you so much, Chris. So we have one boost to read this week. We got a couple, um, no message ones, but we have one boost to read. Um, remember, you can always use a Podcasting 2.0 app to send uh, messages into the show and support an independent podcasting ecosystem. We recommend Fountain on Android, Podverse, which is cross-platform and self-hostable, though a bit complicated. I think CryptoKyle had some critiques of that and Castomatic on Apple. I wouldn't plan on so much self-hosting Podverse. I mean, you could, but uh, the beauty of Podverse is that it's a cross-platform and they do have a hosted system. I think it's a real nice combination, too, if you don't want to switch podcast apps. You can get Albi, throw some sats in there, and then go over to Podverse and send the show a boost. Uh, and it makes it pretty quick because, you know, to be frank, not very many boosts this week. And um, that's, you know, and there's like at a point where as the show grows, there will have to be kind of an examination of, well, what is the revenue source eventually to make it sustainable? Because, you know, dad's got a family and work to do and only so much time in the day. And I think when you get to that point, you reflect, is it sponsorships or is it value for value? And we both strongly believe in the value for value model, but it does require that everybody participates. And I feel like now's a great time. When the Bitcoin price is down, sats are cheap. It's a great time to experiment with a, a way to send in sats, even if you don't intend to switch podcasting apps. It's still a great opportunity to experiment with Albi. I was just doing that this weekend, you know, just to kind of see what that workflow is like. I give it a recommendation and it's a great way to support the show and keep us going and just get us chatting questions, observations, how you listen to the show, what you're doing for the holidays. We'll take any of it. User 302 boosts in 1400 sats, simply saying great show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. You know, uh, our real MVPs of the week were Bitcoin Lizard, who sent in 5,000 sats in a, throughout two boosts with no message. And do you have a guess on how to pronounce the other 5,000 sat booster? I think it's Salvatore Nakamoto. Oh, yeah. You got it. With 5,000 sats, no message. So thank you both for the uh, 5,000 sat boosts. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on December 2nd, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with. Oh, me, Chris, still watching SPF. See you next time.